Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. I am your host, Joshua Summer. Today we've got another Baptist Broadcast interview. I'm doing a, a chain of these interviews. Uh, it's kind of just on a very practical level. It's it's convenient for me. We've got our conference coming up, which I hope many of you are going to be at, or if you can't be at it, you're going to at least be live streaming it. Uh, Doctors Jim and Sam Renahan, and then uh, Pastor Steve Meister from IBC uh, Sacramento are going to be speaking to the issue of confessionalism, uh, and that's taking place the 9th and 10th uh, here in a couple of days from when I'm recording this. And so um, as I get ready for that, of course, things are very busy uh, here, and so it's been nice not to do solo episodes over the last couple uh, of weeks and to interview some some great minds here. And uh, this this one is... Dr. Peter Sammons. So I am overjoyed to have Dr. Peter Sammons with me uh, in this interview. We're going to be talking about Calvinism, uh, the origins of Calvinism historically. Of course, we all know it's biblical, but did it exist before the Reformation? And is Calvinism just kind of like a, a, a development uh, and crystallization of that which was already there in the Christian tradition? Um, we're going to be talking about primary and secondary causality, man's responsibility in light of God's sovereignty, contingency, necessity, and things of that nature. So hope you guys are ready. Again, thank you for joining uh, us here. Uh, hope you enjoy the interview. All right, so we got Dr. Danger for the first time. Peter Sammons. Taking so long. I know. Uh, I have a few people like that, and I'm like, you know, like Sam... Parkinson is one that I want to have on. I he doesn't know that actually. So if he watches this, he'll he'll learn that now I want him to be on my <laughs> podcast. But um uh there's a few people like that. I'm like, I know and and uh have thought about having him on, but I haven't haven't had a chance to do it yet. So welcome. Thanks. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. And uh you were just talking to me talking to me about how uh busy you are. Uh got a lot of irons in the fire. Maybe you want to tell people about that. I mean, he, he's you're gracious enough to take time out of that schedule and come on here. And maybe let people know kind of like what you're what you've got in the pipeline. And so far as you're able to disclose that kind of stuff, I don't know how secret it is, but yeah, yeah, no, it's um uh, lots lots of stuff's always going on. I mean, I uh, classes start tomorrow, so we get busy around here with new students. So I think I got about fifty five new guys in our Theo one class, which covers. Um, prolegomena, bibliology, theology proper. So that's where we get into all the attributes of God and, and yeah. predestination and everything, which is some of my favorite stuff. And then, um, yeah, some of the the book material working on, it's like every year you kind of have something. I, I was doing a lot of journal articles in years past, and then it just kind of, you know, you start working on that, it starts to matriculate into book material. And so uh, I just had a small lay book come out on the attributes of God that's intended to kind of introduce just the layman to uh, classical theism and introduce, you know, pure actuality, aseity, simplicity, and have like a very, very bare bones introduction. Because a lot of the books that have come out have either been very either intermediate or advanced, but I felt like there wasn't really anything that you could just hand like a, a regular person in the pew. And so that was kind of yeah. the goal of that material. So very simple, got some questions at the backs of the chapters. Um, one thing I've been working on though for about a year, I started on it last year, was to take some of the material from my THM that I did on the actual obedience of Christ and turn that into a book. And so that's, uh, I'm slated to have that done for uh, Kriegel. Kriegel did my 
academic reprobation books. They're kind of doing some of my at more academic titles. And so uh, this one will be on threefold imputation, you know, focusing towards the end of that on the act of obedience of Christ. And then um, at, so that's due at the end of the year. And then next year I have one with the, the red series, uh, Christian focus on dual mediation. And that's a great series. I was just excited to be in it. Um, I got the one by, uh, the first one was J.B. Fesco's Death and Adam, Life in Christ, mm. which is a great, yeah. great book. And then um, I got the one by Paul Helm, which was funny to see it because I actually read the articles out of the Yale series that him and uh, Moeller did against each other. They kind of turned that into a book, but it's it's wonderful. So, it, so I'll be doing something on that. And then also a, a, a lay book on the offices of Christ. So just a little bit of everything, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's good to hear. And and for those wondering and and maybe unfamiliar with, with you, Peter, uh, I'll just you're you're a professor at the Master Seminary. Um, what's your exact title out there, and how long have you been teaching? Uh, yeah, so I think my title is the, an associate faculty. They change it based on every couple of years, you know, you meet a benchmark and you go from like assistant to associate, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe I'm going to, maybe I'm an assistant. I don't know. <laughs> um, and so I'm at that second level. So I started teaching 2017 when I finished my PhD, uh, I was just doing adjunct stuff and overseeing our distance ed. And then they brought me on full time uh, a few years ago. And so this is my third full year, I think starting up here. So yeah. Nice. Nice. And how long have you been? So you're a member at Grace Community Church. Uh, how long have you been with 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 Grace? Oh, yeah. Uh, so I came here in 2009 to attend Master Seminary and did my MDiv, you know, THM and PhD all here. And so I became a member, I think, in probably takes about six months or so. It's probably 2009, 2010. So I've been here for a while. That's awesome. Yeah. Lots of stuff going on out there. And um I actually just saw Essential Church uh, with a group yeah. of church members. I think you knew that. I I let you know, and it was it was uh, fantastic. Um, really well done. So uh, very encouraged by that. And um, yeah, I was glad to um, hear you say that because I remember I was talking with some friends. I remember you know, like everybody, you know, when you see something like that, there's a natural kind of hesitancy to be like, well, what is this all about? You know, I still haven't even had a chance to see it myself. I mean. I kind of got to live it because I was here, yeah. but you know, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen it yet. And so I was kind of like, ah, you know, you don't want the big pat on the back, you know, look at what we did. And I remember when you first messaged and said, Hey, you know, I saw it. And I thought it was great. I was like, Oh, that's wonderful. Cause yeah. I think you give it that serious kind of evaluation of, okay, is it legitimately just like a good, really helpful documentary, you know, that people will be edified by that's not, you know, just patting yourself on the back. And I, I figured you'd give it a good, um, a fair shake, you know, like if it was done well, you'd yeah. let us know. I'm glad. Yeah. I, and I didn't get that sense at all. Like, uh, it, it wasn't like, Hey, look at, look at, look at how well we responded to COVID. And in fact, it was, it was candidly, it seemed candidly honest with the fact that, Hey, you know, we didn't have all the answers with regard to the relationship between the church and the state. And there were some things we had to, you know, reevaluate when the time came. And so it was, uh, it was humbly produced, I think, and 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 in that way, it is extremely helpful. So it's even more helpful, you know, than just, hey, here's here's how we responded, and 
maybe this will help you respond to the next time something like this happens. It was helpful in that vein too, but it was just, it was really helpful when bringing the history into it and then kind of saying also, Hey, like many of you, this was something we had, we were confronted with quickly and we had to reevaluate where our stance was. And, and that was, man, that was my shoes at a very, you know, a lot smaller of a scale, but it was like, it happened so quick and you're sitting there at your study or your computer or whatever, and you're reading the news headlines and you're thinking, how am I going to lead the congregation through this? It's like unprecedented times. And so, yeah, it was, it was just a good all around uh, production. So. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear it. You know, a lot of people just see the end result and, and they don't, you know, see all the things that went in behind it. And I do think, I'm glad that came through in the film because I know behind yeah. the scenes, people were really humbly reevaluating things that we had said and thought for, you know, decades because we'd never had that kind of, you know, uh, overhanded stuff from the government, especially here. I mean, we've always been a supporter of the police at our church. Mm-hmm. We have a, a police appreciation thing every year, you know, pastor John and all the pastoral staff support the, the hard work that, you know, some of these guys are in, war zones in LA, you know, and come to our church and stuff. And so, you know, it's just, yeah, something we had to look at with a fresh perspective. And I think it goes into like America and kind of the modern era we're in, where there's not the same kind of rich ecclesiology Mm -hmm. historically, you know, I mean, a non-denominational church only can go back so far. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we didn't have built in a, a respect for, I think what happened with the Puritans and the Covenanters and things like that, which I think they bring out in the film. And you realize that they had to live every no every part of their existence was government overreach trying to change and squelch religion. So yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. speaking about Puritans and Covenanters, Calvinism, right? And that's kind of why I wanted to have you on is to talk about something in the vein. And and of course, it's a casual conversation, and so there's there's not a you know we don't have a, a big old outline prepared. I, I sent Peter some questions and and conversation prompts before this about two hours ago. So um, we're just kind of having a conversation about God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, um, and so on. You wrote a book called Reprobation and God's Sovereignty that dropped last year, um, and so recovering a biblical doctrine is the subtitle to that, and. Um, Tell us a little bit about that as we kind of wade into the subject of uh, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and so on. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things that, I don't know, discovered at a a pretty early age with the doctrines of grace uh, when I became saved, you know, I got saved, you know, was trying to figure some of that stuff out, reading Romans 9, kind of floored with just what that's presenting to me about what I thought God was. And what he was like as a very early Christian, I got, you know, I was raised in the Bible Belt, Missouri. Um, And so I just always thought, you know, like an SBC kid would, you know, that God loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. You know, Mm, Uh, I had no idea that maybe Jesus didn't die for everybody or that God chose before the foundation of the world, those who'd be instruments of justice and those who'd be instruments of of special favor in Jesus. And so I, I had no idea, but I read Romans nine one time and we were going to, to school and telling my best friend at the time, I was like, okay, I read this. I don't know what to do with it. You know? And he was really upset. We both went to church together. Like he told me later, he's like, he said he wanted to punch me in the face. He was so mad. 
And I was like, dude, I just read the Bible, you know? And uh, so it was one of those things I've always had a curiosity of trying to figure out how it is that we have an all sovereign God who's benevolent and completely holy. And yet also he has ordained all things, including men's end and the means therein, you know, like how they end up at that end. And so I've always had that, that interest. And so when I started to do my doctoral work about 2015 um, at master's seminary um that was just one of the topics that i was interested in and my advisor was like yeah let's let's go for it there's not a lot of treatments on that particularly with relationship to causation and so that's really what started it for me uh, just looking into it more historically and so that book is just kind of the really simplified version of the 525 page dissertation you know you cut that thing down you end up with like 200 300 pages so right Right. Yeah. I mean, and full disclosure, I have not read, I've read snippets from the book, but I've not read the whole thing. So I, I don't know how, how, how much you get into the historical aspects of the doctrine uh, in that book. Um, but I know you're acquainted with uh, the historical theology when it comes to, you know, uh, Calvinism and, and things of that nature. And so kind of what I wanted to start off talking about is, you know, it, when we're taught the cliff notes of Christian history and we hit the Reformation, sometimes the Reformation is portrayed as a time at which, you know, that which had been completely lost uh, down through the centuries uh, from Augustine onward uh, was all of a sudden recovered. Um, and, and how that can come off, you know, there's some truth to that, but how that can come off to the the kind of um uh you know introductory level mind is that hey the, the the church was totally lost um during those years until the reformation and then the reformation was also you know the development of theology that had never been seen before in the scriptures and so one of the things that i kind of wanted to talk about a little bit was you know, is Calvinism, of course, it's associated with the name John Calvin. And so that puts it into time, into the 16th century. Um, is Calvinism something that was, you know, kind of invented? Is it an accretion uh, that began in the 16th century and just kind of found development up through the next couple hundred years? Or is Calvinism really just uh, a an old doctrine that finds crystallization in the 16th and 17th centuries? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think uh, it's one of those things we got to kind of recover sometimes is recognizing that, you know, Calvin and Luther didn't create the, you know, the Protestant doctrines of grace or any of that, or even the doctrine of predestination, which a lot of times when you tell people you're studying the doctrine of predestination or you're, you're a Calvinist, they immediately think, Oh, he created the doctrine of predestination. Uh, they wouldn't argue that way. In fact, you see them constantly appealing to the church fathers, especially Calvin. Like he was big on appealing to the church fathers yeah. for all of his positions, which is what I really like about him. It's kind of the unique thing that he brought to the whole debate on the will. Um, because what you have is Martin Luther is approaching it from a pretty polemical standpoint. He's fighting off against Erasmus and he's very concerned about the biblical text. He does a really great job of giving a biblical polemic, I would say, yeah. against the kind of humanism that you find in in uh, Erasmus. And then you have Calvin, though, when he does his thing against Piggyus, 
writing on the will and predestination, he actually does a very church history version. It's it's much more level than church history. So rather than doing the polemical exegetical approach, he does a more of a historical approach and appeals mm-hmm. to the church fathers, appeals to the mid- medievals um, a lot. And that's in his bondage and liberation of the will. And I guess Edwards later on does his own kind of philosophical approach to the same concept. And so those three kind of cover all the bases of the theological encyclopedia. So I do think there's a maturity that happens uh, because of the recovery of the original languages and scripture and more accessible to people um, that it allows for discussion on the doctrines of grace to become more nuanced and more clear and more uh, refined. But the doctrines of grace, uh, especially the doctrine of predestination, is in every century of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, in that book that you mentioned, I don't have the history in that book. I did a small little book for Van Hoek and Rupert. Essentially, it's just a, a summary of what you'll find in the larger work by this guy, Donald Semina. And like 1985, he did his PhD on the history of, of the whole thing. And he just led me to a whole bunch of guys that I was like, I had no clue that they were talking about this. I mean, I knew about God's shock of Orbe's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 900s. And I knew about, you know, a few other figures, but I didn't realize how many of them were talking about single predestination, double predestination. So you have, you know, Peter, Peter Lombard introducing the concepts that ultimately I think will find fruition in Arminius, but then mm-hmm. you'll find guys kind of combating that like a Thomas Aquinas and guys in the medieval ages that are much more akin to what you see in what becomes the standard reformed position because of the doctrine of causality and in double predestination. So um, yeah, I think that what you see in the reformation though, with especially Calvin and Luther is because the recovery of the biblical languages um, again, they're not trying to devoid themselves from the, you know, the generations that came before them, uh, especially with regard to predestination and stuff. So you'll see that they're, you know, right in line with that. But it's after them, really, that I think the doctrine of predestination gets even more refined because, mm-hmm. you know, Calvin is interesting. When you look at the different editions of, of Calvin's Institutes, he places it in the most strange spot. You know, I, I've even heard guys say um, that Calvin wasn't really a Calvinist. And that was a big debate. Mm-hmm. Until I think Paul Helm kind of put that to death with uh, his little work that he did. Um, I still have my students read that for our Calvin course, but he puts predestination right after prayer in the Institutes mm. in the final edition. And you're kind of like, that's a strange place. He keeps saying, yeah. we could deal with this here. We could deal with this here. We could deal with this here. And then he eventually lands on it in prayer. Um, but it's certainly in the context of the Protestant Reformation that they're concerned about that um, and dealing with it biblically. But yeah, it's after that where you really see, I think, you have the Cambridge controversies, you have the Hague, you have the trial of the Arminians at the, you know, Synod of Dort. And that's really where I think you start to see a much more robust definition of preterism, predamnation as the parts of the decree of reprobation um, become more full in the 17th century. Mm, yeah. Yeah. With the, uh, with the Puritan reform scholastics and, and there's yeah. a, there seems to be a more like an, an emphasis, not, I don't want to say system, but on uh, a more scholastic methodical approach with the exegesis. So like, I was just talking to somebody uh, earlier about how the, you know, the pre, the pre-modern way of doing theology, you know, it wasn't like you had biblical theology down the hall and systematic theology was down the other side of the hall. (laughs) 
yeah. uh, and they were kind of unrelated to one another. That's kind of how it feels now. Yeah. Back then, they were they were intertwined. They were integrated. And so you read the Puritans, and you get systematic treatments of theology, but richly intertwined with uh, exegesis of the scriptures, um, okay. going ad fontis back to the original languages and so on. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, you look at John Owen and death of death mm-hmm. and I still think to this day, it's, it's the, it's the Titan that the Armenians haven't been able to deal with. Right. Mm-hmm. The fact that it deals with all the problem texts at a very exegetical level, but gives yeah. you a way to talk about the harmony of the whole systematically against the various perversions of the Armenians. Yeah. And then, you know, you see that again, it's just a, caricature of of the reformation pierre van maastricht is really good at that too like he has an exegetical portion i the fact that that's just now coming out is remarkable i think the fourth volume just came out Mm -hmm. and it's just like he has a great method exegetical again no one's saying not to do your homework right not to do exegesis at all but he has an exegetical portion of every doctrine then he goes into the what dogmatic polemic Mm -hmm. practical i think i can't remember the exact outline but it's almost like a bulletproof way to have a well-rounded theologian, a well-rounded minister is to cover your, cover your basis, to do all of the work, not just absolutely one part. Yeah. And as he, and as he interacts with the tradition, he's also doing exegesis showing that those two things are not mutually exclusive, you know, and, and it seems like part of the Reformation project was, yeah, let's do exegesis. Let's go back to the source, which is scripture in its original languages. Um, and at the same time, show how we're actually confirmed within the lineage of Christians that's gone before us because we're adhering to the scriptures. So it's yeah, and that's why so, you'll see Luther is willing to you know say that next to scripture, next to the Apostle Paul, the Athanasian Creed mm-hmm. is next to scripture. Like he thinks it's yeah. that 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 much a, a reflection of what's in the biblical text, which is like what I mean. Martin Luther, you know, said that. So yeah, um, it's one of those things where yeah, you'd have to have a hard time showing me from maybe Nicaea um, where somewhere in the Bible where a sentence there, a clause there, a phrase there, a word there is not what the scripture is teaching, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's kind of dive further into the, the subject matter. Um, One of the things that I kind of want to talk about, you know, as we talk about predestination and Calvinism, and you mentioned the Synod of Dort and all of the questions that begin to arise uh, when, you know, the subject of God's sovereignty is broached, usually fall along the lines in some way uh, of, you know, if God is sovereign over all things, if he's in control of all things, if he decreed all things, then what does that do to to human responsibility? And I thought I would just start off with the hard stuff up front yeah. and, uh, and, and get you to talk about first and second uh, or primary and secondary causality or first and second causes, because one of the one of the things that features heavily, whether you're looking at Calvin or um, even the the confessional the confessional literature of the of the 17th century, is this notion of primary and secondary causality. And it seems that that notion plays a very important kind of cornerstone role in the further formulation of the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So, you know, to kind of bring the hard stuff out up front, first and second causes, could you maybe give listeners an idea of what those are? Yeah. I mean, I like, I mean, the way it gets developed in Christian literature, um, 
is is really important. I mean, everyone recognizes a first cause or causation. We recognize it in day to day things. We're taught that in the hard sciences and like elementary school, right? Mm-hmm. If you take uh, you know this chemical and mix it with that chemical, it has a reaction. Something caused something to happen. You know, if I take a hammer and I hit it against the wall, it makes a sound, right? Yeah. Um, so we learned that very early on. That kind of very you know, brute level relationship of cause and effect. Um, but there's a, there's a higher level of causation than just cause and effect in the empirical world. And so that's where we get the, the difference between first cause and secondary cause. A first cause would be like a direct agent, a direct actor, a direct efficient cause. Something caused something directly. Uh, where a secondary cause would be something that causes something or a first cause can affect a second cause that then produces a result. But the second cause itself is the direct agent, I guess Mm. that would be a better way to say it. I like to use the categories of, you know, primary cause um, and then secondary cause or efficient cause, I guess could be better than even secondary. Um, Because I don't know. So let me, let me back it up just a second. If I think it's interesting that in the confessional literature, as you mentioned earlier, we have doctrine of God, then followed by the decree, right? Um, so scripture, doctrine of God, decree. And one of the reasons is, is that in order for you to believe in primary or secondary causes, you have to believe in a God who is not created, hmm. right? A God who creates all things. And so if God is not created, there's no infinite regress. There's nothing behind God that caused God. Mm-hmm. And you have to, he has to have some level of say over everything he makes, everything that he creates. And I think that's where you really see a wonderful connection between pure actuality and causality. If God is the one who is, needs, has no potential to be realized, right, has no passive potential, then that means the world itself can't spontaneously exist without there being a prime mover, a first cause. And so mm-hmm. God's the first cause. Secondary causes or what we call, you know, maybe proximate or efficient causes are other levels of causation in the world. And I like that about the creed too, or the confession as well, as it says that God establishes secondary causes. So he determined before the foundation of the world that, you know, I don't know, John Bunyan would hear the preaching of the gospel at a certain time and at a certain place. And so while there was the preacher that he heard the gospel being preached from, that man would be in some ways a secondary cause while God is the primary cause. God authored it into existence. He authored that that man would exist, that that man would give the gospel, and he authored that John Bunyan would believe the gospel and as a monergistic work of his sovereign will caused John Bunyan to be born again. That's a that's an example of God being a primary cause in basically the whole the whole thing, but he still uses secondary causes, right? Mm. He still yeah. uses the gospel preacher. You know, he's not without, you know, a secondary cause. I mean, he could have done it without a secondary cause, but he's ordained the preaching of the gospel to be the secondary causes he uses to regenerate the heart of right. men. Um, when it comes to evil, though, we have to have different levels of causation. We see that in scripture. I like to go to Acts 2 and Acts 4, both great examples. Peter's preaching both times. And so he's, you know, charging the Jews and he says, um, God ordained the death of Jesus by the Jews and the hands of godless men, the Gentiles. 
And so you have at least three levels of blamability or culpability in the death of Jesus. You have the fact it was the preeternal plan of God before the foundation of the world. That's one level of cause or one level of, of responsibility. Then you have by the hands of godless men, that's another level of responsibility. And then the Jews, you know, who you put to death, right? Yeah. It says by the hands of godless men. So again, there's there can be an infinite level of causes, you know, chain reactions that affect each other, you know. Um yeah. and so like Pilate didn't listen to his wife or whatever, you know, you could have a whole yeah. bunch of scenarios of whatever affected Pilate's decision to give in to the mob, right? Nevertheless, he's still responsible. Right. But his responsibility is according to a perfectly just God, it's weighed to be different from the responsibility of the mob crying, his blood be on us and our children. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, both resulted in the same, you know, thing, Jesus being killed. Um, but there's a different purpose in each person. There's a different means by which each person executed their purpose, whether it be vocally or passively, right? Like kind of Pilate mm-hmm. said, well, you do with him what you want. Um, turning them over to somebody else to do it um, versus God. You know, God's still yeah. responsible ultimately for the death of Jesus. So I think as an ultimate cause, he's the highest level. He determines all things, but he's determined all those secondary and tertiary causes as well um, that can have more of a direct proximate relationship to sin and evil that he mm-hmm. can't have. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So like a first cause would be that which cannot be acted upon. Otherwise he would be caused in some way. Yeah. That'd be the first cause. And then second causes are those which are acted upon by the first and, and then they fall out in different ways. So like according to their nature and you read this kind of language, you know, like you were talking about the Puritans and, and I brought up the confessional literature you read this kind of language in in all the 17th century um, uh, Puritan authors where uh, there are second causes, uh, and these second causes act, though they fall under the um, sovereign rule of the first, they yet act and are affected according to their natures, according to how God makes them. And so this kind of gets us to the the one of the other things that I wanted to talk about, and that's contingency. And one of the things that people, if, you know, people listening, which I would assume do this, they read Puritan literature. One of the things they'll run across quite often is uh, necessity and contingency. Um, And uh, kind of like primary and secondary causality, that language necessity and contingency plays a pretty uh, important role in the literature as well. Um, could you explain what necessity and contingency are? And then let's talk about contingency in relationship to the sovereignty of the first cause, if we can do that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's so much we could cover on just that. Yeah. I mean, so when you talk about necessity, sometimes guys use it differently. Sometimes guys will use necessity to talk about you know, for one, whatever God has ordained is necessary. I mean, mm-hmm. it has to happen because he ordained it. Um, another way to talk about necessity is how a thing must be given its nature, right? Given how it is, right? Yeah. Um, and then contingency can be used differently as well. Sometimes guys will use contingency when they're talking against like an Arminian opponent who sees contingency 
as something necessary for human responsibility, mm. um, meaning that the creature has to have the contingency to do either A or non-A given a particular instance. So to choose to reject God or accept God, and that's something that they have to be contingently able to do. So whenever yeah. the reformers, or, well, the later Puritan guys are dealing with the Arminian heresy, they're dealing with the fact that the Arminians are bringing contingency into trying to determine moral culpability. Mm. Um, and so they're trying to say that in order for men to be morally culpable, there had to be no necessity whatsoever right. in the actions they made from either God's part or for their part by mm. nature. Yeah. And so with Luther, he was very good on necessity, I thought, with regard to both of those. There's necessity because God has ordained everything. That's the hidden will of God, right? Or the secret will of God, depending mm -hmm. how you want to read it. And then there's necessity of things based on nature. And so because man is dead in sin and bondage, he's morally incapable or spiritually incapable of ever choosing God. So mm -hmm. of necessity, he will always choose evil unless acted upon to have a new nature, which can then choose good. Right. And so necessity then can be talked about in that context. So I think those two contexts are kind of the key uh, for that just, you know, brief kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes what what people will say is, well, uh, there can be nothing that falls out contingently, you know, or freely yeah. um, because of the divine decree. And what they'll do is they'll basically use that as an excuse to eradicate human responsibility and and so they'll say, well, because everything, everything is necessary on on my part, as well as God's part. So you kind of have the this is the inverse of the Arminian impulse, which is to say that that nothing is necessary on God's part or man's part. But then you have the inverse to that, which is everything's necessary and there is no such thing as contingency at all. Yeah. And then they'll jump from that to therefore I have no responsibility for my sin you know, yeah. because I'm just a puppet kind of thing. And yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about like how people understand what human volition is, what role it plays in our responsibility. Um, you know, a lot of times guys mix those things up and they think, well, I have to have had the ability to choose any way I wanted in order for me to be responsible. And that's not the case at all. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't even have that in reality. Like, in the way we live our day-to-day -day lives, there's plenty of things that you're responsible to that you had no decision in. Right. Um, you know, uh, like for example, we all have to pay our taxes, but none of us got to say in how much of our taxes we would have to pay. It was decided, right. for us, you know, uh, right. a long time ago and it keeps going up. It seems so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's true. Well, it's yeah, like, I think, yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's like, you can't, you know, um, you're you're responsible to uh you know the the civil authorities um even if you don't like i guess maybe i don't know how well this analogy works but if you plead ignorance with a with a police officer uh at a traffic stop you know when yeah. they stop you and you say well i just didn't know uh they'll say that doesn't matter yeah. you're still getting a ticket because ignorance of the law isn't actually like an excuse Liberty for breaking the law. Right, right. And so, you know, there's this there's there's even these like analogies in our everyday living that tell us, well, you can still be held responsible for for sin, uh, even if God is ultimately in control of everything. Um, 
And yeah, what I find, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I, don't know, I, just, I mean, that's one of the key things is that he's made each nature to act according to its principal parts. Yes. yes. And so each nature does what is in its ability to do. So like, I can't fly, you know, even if I wish right. I could, I can't go intangible, you know, or whatever. Um, I'm always going to act according to my nature. And he's also determined that I will be responsible according to my nature and what it's supposed to exist to do, you know? Yeah. So even the pagan who's never even heard of, of Jesus is still responsible to repent and believe in Jesus. Right. Even though they've never heard of him and they may die never hearing of him. And they're still right. responsible. Like you said, I think it's, it is a good analogy. They're going to get to stand before God one day and they're going to say, well, I never heard your name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be like, okay, yeah, I guess you can go to heaven, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You lived in rebellion against me your entire life. Well, and that's a good point too, because something that you find in the, in the literature all the time is, is that, you know, these second causes um, will fall out according to their natures. And what that seems to, what I've always thought that to mean is that like, if you have a volitional nature, which is like a rational nature, which is, yeah what human beings have the the puritans would call that you know would call that a a a free uh volitional agent you know and because it's a volitional nature then what it does is quote unquote free now it's not talking about the libertarian free will that we hear about in arminianism or anything like that so that's not what they're talking about but they're saying that your nature is such as a human being your nature is such that what you do is volitional. It's according to a will. Yeah. Um. And so, uh, that's a that's a really good point that you bring up that that these yeah, things I, happen according to nature. And one of the things I always tell guys in class too, um, in my Theo one class, is that what when God made man, He made him a rational soul and body, right? Um, mm-hmm. A rational body and soul. So we have a will um, that is the product of our, you know rational soul and everything is that we make moral decisions because our natures are moral Mm -hmm. we have a soul that is morally um measurable because god has given it the parts to be morally measurable now for example a animal like uh, a cat cannot commit a moral action okay yeah a cat can eat food it can eat a mouse it can kill a mouse it's not a moral action Right. It can come and it can curl up next to you and you can pet it or whatever. That's not a moral action either. You know, you might yeah. think, oh, that's nice where he curled up next to me or whatever. And that's not very nice because it ate this rat. But neither one of those are moral <laughs> or immoral actions because animal brute beasts are lacking the component parts that are measurable for morality, which mm-hmm. is you know, a rational body, soul and will. And so that's why, again, men are be able to be held accountable, being made in the image of God, who is righteous. He's communicated that in the Imago Dei, that's man's nature, reflecting the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so now because of that, we have a measurable, just, you know, uh, moral nature that brood animals don't have. Right. Yeah. And, and I, you know what I find interesting about all this is like, all of that is language that is found before the Reformation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they're used, I mean, like one of the foremost, I mean, is would be people like Anselm and, and Thomas Aquinas, where you find all of this language. Of course, they're adapting it to the Christian tradition, but it's coming out of 
you know, things like Aristotelian oh, metaphysics, which is yeah. like a bad word. I know we can't say that. And yeah. so, you know, I should, I should censor myself maybe. <laughs> no, I just think it's funny because like, okay, so all of the reformers who I love, I mean, you know, I read the Puritans. I'm not just sitting around reading, you know, Ann Selman stuff, although I've read right. him. But it's one of those things where I love, you know, the Puritans the most. And I look at what they were all trained in a medieval education, especially right. Luther and Calvin, you know, yeah. Luther and Calvin were medieval men. And they're at that like kind of crux in history. And as medieval men, that means that they had training in rhetoric in logic, mm -hmm. meaning they had to understand Aristotle's um, virtue ethics. They had to understand the, you know, the five ways they had to understand a, a lot of stuff that our generation has never even heard of. You know, right. which is interesting. Yep. And these guys all studied it just as just a course of just their undergraduate, maybe high school level education, yeah. like what we would call it nowadays. Um, just so much more advanced. And yet we, we don't recognize, I mean, yeah, they didn't have iPhones, but they were much yeah. smarter, you know, yeah. than people of our day. And they use those categories and they use the terms with historical meaning um, that have weight to them. Uh, and so I just think that it's important not to pull them out of their context. You know, you're not going to pull yeah. Calvin out of his context or even Perkins, William Perkins out of his context, right. John Owen out of his English, you know, context and just say, you know what? Uh, I don't need all the things that made them the men that they are, that gave them the, the technical theological precision. And I think that their training is why they're able to be so precise with their Bible exegesis. Right. That's right. You know? That's exactly right. Uh, it gave them tools that they were able to study because they're studying in Latin. Then they were able to understand Greek better probably than mm -hmm. most guys who didn't know Latin as a base language. Um, and so again, God gave them tools for their time to recover, you know, the importance of Bible study and exegesis um, that again, all that language that's built into their education helped them to be more precise. That's why sometimes they're called precisionists, you know, because yeah. they're yeah. so precise. Well, so. and the, the implication of just kind of dispatching with all that is that they were they were all seriously misled. And and, and so you would have to say you would have to say, well, if, if that's not important, if their background and their training isn't important, if their methods not important, which was scholasticism, um, then they were all misled, which puts us oh, in yeah. a position of being extremely, you know, uh, I think to use the language of someone like Ken Ham would be chronological snobs or no, that's C.S. Lewis. That comes from C.S. Yeah. Lewis. Ken Ham uses it though. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just thought that that's a, I, I went it's to, true. yeah. I mean, in, in 2018, I mean, Oh, go ahead. I know. I was just thinking like, we do that all the time where we look at like a guy like Luther and there's a reason why we reject, you know, at least I reject and you know, I'm sure you reject baptismal regeneration or some mm -hmm. of the, you know, um, the stuff about, um, his, uh, transubstantiation. Right. Um, and so it's just like our consubstantiation, whatever. Um, it's one of those things where we're like, why do we reject that out of Luther, but then embrace, you know, his exegetical method or something, you know? Um, and I think a lot of times guys don't recognize either that when they hear classism, this is one of the things I'm still combating ever since, uh, you know, I wrote that small article for Credo. It's mm -hmm. like guys didn't read past the first paragraph, I don't think. But it's one of those things where um, people forget there are multiple schools of scholastic method. It's a method, not a doctrine. Right. right. And it's a method of how do we learn, right? Yeah. Yep. We're taught to do that. Well, at least we teach 
every student that comes through the master seminary and they have for decades how to ask questions when you come to the biblical text who wrote yeah. this why did he write it to what audience is he writing it like you get generic theological questions or observations that you make of the biblical text just in your first reading right of the biblical text that's a method right yeah you're yeah. doing a method there and it's either a correct method to ask to ask the right questions or it's an incorrect method, which is a different whole different school of scholastic method too. Right. Um, so yeah, so it I, I don't know. I just think that's important to throw in there, just because when you talk about scholasticism influencing how these guys did, they were asking questions of the biblical text using right. the method that they taught they were taught in school in the scholastic schools. Um, yeah, think about it in terms of the nominalists versus the realists, and you had nominalists and realist scholastics, but you couldn't have more of a disagreement in terms of their content. Yeah, and so absolutely. it's a it's a method, a way of organization, uh, and teaching rather than uh, you know a doctrine that's taught that bears a, a ton of content. But that's why you can have yeah, you can have Peter Vermigli, the firebrand, you know, one of the guys yeah. of the Reformation. I think they call him the Phoenix or something like that. I can't remember. But he had one of those cool names, right? And he's a scholastic through and through his method and everything, he even writes like mm -hmm. that. And then you have the famed Leiden, the thing that we finally got into print thanks to uh, those Davenant guys putting the synopsis of pure theology. That is a, a, a standard at Leiden that came out at the time where all the theology guys, profs working together to, to work on that volume written according to the scholastic method. And yet that is all the polar opposite. Of yes. obviously the Roman Catholic Church and things of their day. In fact, they're using this classic method to combat the Roman Catholic Church. Yep. Uh, with that kind of leading question and answer sort of style of, of educating their churchmen, you know. Right. Right. Um, kind of I want to I want to kind of travel, I want to backtrack a little bit and and uh read something from chapter five of Divine Providence of the Second London Confession, which goes back to what we were talking about about necessary free contingent you know, the way in which things, certain things fall out according to God's providence. And um, chapter five, paragraph two of divine providence in the second London says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutable, immutably and infallibly. So that's the necessity on God's part that you and I were talking about. So that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence, Yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And I don't know if you've run into this kind of language before, but one of the one of the things that I've I've read before that's kind of helped me understand the difference between those things, like, okay, how does a necessary how does something fall out uh, according to a necessary second cause? And I think the analogy has been used of like the sun. Yeah. where the sun like as the sun it shines it, that's just what it does it shines it 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 sends forth rays and like if it didn't send forth rays it wouldn't be the sun yeah. uh, it would be something else and so that would be like one way in which something falls out according to a necessary second cause like the sun the sun shines in virtue of its nature it's a necessity yeah. of nature and then freely or contingently would be like what we were talking about with the human volition. Like we make choices and that's what they mean by that. We're of such a nature that we make yeah. moral and rational judgments. Yeah. Like um, another good example, even there with providence, is it's not even exclusively just human. Like we have mm -hmm. um, 
I, I think I've seen are used maybe in, in lectures and things like the example of an apple in a tree, right? An apple can fall from a tree of necessity because of gravity over time, right? Just because right. its nature is such that if it sits on the vine for too long, it shrivels up at the vine level, becomes too heavy in the fruit level and falls to the ground. That, that can yeah. happen in nature. It can also happen um, freely in that some guy's walking by and he just pulls it off the tree. Yeah. It wasn't by nature that the thing fell, right? Yeah. Um, it was the thing, you know, a guy came along and pulled it off the tree. That'd be a free right. choice that the, that the creature made according to his nature. Why? Yep. Well, yep. If you're Augustine and you're a kid and you have a sinful heart to throw it upon the ground and just waste it, right? <laughs> yeah, he had yeah. that moral conundrum in the confessions yeah. or because he's hungry, right? And so he pulls right. it down to eat it. Um, that, again, can be a free or a contingent uh, relationship there between the apple coming off of the tree versus falling of necessity because of just the weight of, of gravity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, an, that's just another example. Ton, we use that all the time. It's just sometimes being more thoughtful. Right. Well, what do those words all mean? And they're all very unique. And that's why I think they're so useful because it's not just flattening the rich, you know, distinctions that we find in life and in the biblical text, right? You know, to where everything has the same level of responsibility. Well, God must be just as evil as I am if I commit an evil sin that God yeah. ordained. Right. I mean, it's right. just flattening it out, right? God had yeah. a purpose. God had a noble purpose, an honorable purpose, a glorifying of himself purpose. Absolutely. Right? And I just yeah. had a wicked heart. And now I'm going to try to get off the hook for it because, well, you know, if I can blame God and think I can get away from it, you know, the responsibility, then yeah. that's what I'll do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose the last thing that I'd want to cover, uh, we'll get off here soon, but um and we kind of touched on this a little bit, but like fatalism and hyper-Calvinism, I, I think everything that we've said up to this point would kind of, if you took those two errors and fit them into our discussion, we've probably already addressed them at some level. Like fatalism, you know, that's that's kind of, and, and on a pastoral level, I mean, just in my experience over the last four years of, of pastoring, one of the things that I've run into is... um. Uh, you know, brothers or sisters that um, have have received a doctrine of the doctrines of grace, and and then because of a, an earnest you know mistake, uh, they have made the mis they've made the mistake. They've fallen into the error of thinking, well, um, I don't you know responsibility is kind of this nominal thing that doesn't really matter that much. And so there's this almost like kind of like lurking fatalism. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, it's it's going to happen anyway. God's ordained it, so I don't have to take any sort of action yeah, or anything like that. that. You, you know, know so. what's funny is is that with fatalism, especially as I was studying this a while back, is that comes from you know the philosophers had to deal with that same question. You know, it's called mm -hmm. what they called the idle argument. Yeah. I don't know if your listeners would be familiar with the idle argument, but it's the same idea that you know the the philosophers they didn't have the right view of God, obviously, but they believed in fate. They saw that. There are traceable trajectories unavoidable in the skies, right? Yeah. The stars, and basically they're observing it, that it can't go a different way. They'd observe that if I mix this chemical with this chemical, it always has this reaction. There's not any variance. It's always the same, right? Yeah. Uh, so they learn to make concrete consistently, right? Things like that. And so they, they recognize there's something called fate or some kind of a guarantee that something's going to happen. And so as they're teaching that, well, I can't remember if it was Socrates or Plato, whoever it was, he had to deal with the idol argument. And it was, right. well, 
if it's fated to happen, then it doesn't matter what I do, right? Yeah. So if I'm fated to get better, then I'll just get better. doesn't matter if I take medicine. doesn't matter if I go see a doctor. I'm just going to sit on this couch and just chill because if I'm going to get better, I'll get better. Right. And vice versa. If I'm going to get worse, then, well, it doesn't matter if I take care of my body, go to the gym, eat healthy, because you know what, if I'm going to get, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And the problem with, again, the pagan solution, and then also just that assumption, and especially with hyper-Calvinism too, they both make the right. same mistake, is that secondary causes don't matter. Yeah. yeah. You know, where we understand that God has ordained the secondary causes. Right. It's a means to glorify himself. So God has ordained that you take medicine and that you go to a doctor that, you know, I always find it funny um, whenever, you know, you, you hear about, especially nowadays, you have all these these women who decide, you know what, I do not want any help when I go to the uh, give birth. I want all natural, no uh, epidural, <laughs> no painkillers for me. And I'm like, you know, thinking, I mean, okay, hey, don't want to, you know, slam. I mean, that's a personal decision or whatever. But yeah. I don't understand the thought of why wouldn't I want to take advantage of God's common grace, right? The means that He has given of having, you know, doctors and nurses and people help. So that way we lose less women and children in childbearing than we did 200 years ago. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, exactly. That's ordinary means of grace that not ordinary, sorry, sorry common grace that God right. uses. <laughs> Definitely not ordinary means of grace, but common <laughs> grace that God uses in our lives, which means it's a secondary cause. So God has ordained that secondary causes like doctors and medicine would help us in our daily lives right. and have a result. Sure. And then, an even more important way, same thing with preaching the gospel and evangelizing our lost loved ones or coworkers or friends, right? Yeah. yeah. And realizing that God uses those means. Right. And it also is a comfort to know that it's not up to you either, right? So yeah. you don't have to have that whole, I just didn't try hard enough. Oh, I just wasn't convincing enough. Oh, I can't sleep tonight because I know I should have said this, this, and this. And then maybe yeah. they would leave. You know, can yeah. you imagine the weight of a burden like that trying to you know, especially whenever a loved one dies yeah, for the rest of your life thinking, have I just been more in intent or have been yeah. more persuasive? You know, it doesn't rest on us that way. So yeah. that's why the yeah. Christian can say, Hey, it's in the hands of Providence, right? Yeah. I still have a responsibility to, you know, love my neighbor as myself and to preach the gospel and to be a good, you know, witness and steward and all that. Um, so yeah, so for authentic Christianity, there is no idle argument, you know, so to speak. Yeah. There's no just, yeah. well, if it happens, it happens, fate, you know. For sure, for sure, yeah. Even for like the highest Calvinists, they all recognize a secondary, a level of secondary causes. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's there's a lot of ink spilled um, contra the fatalists um, and those who would try to make excuses for their sin. So it's... Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. I, I appreciate you coming on here. I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up. I think if that's okay with you, unless you had anything else to add. Yeah, no, I, I could talk all day. So it's probably good. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm going to, I'm going to get off here. I've got a, uh, I have got a, uh, uh, some gym time scheduled with a member of the church that we, we go weekly. So it's, nice. it's, that's always fun, but, uh, appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, hashing these things out. Maybe, uh, next time uh when you come on again we'll i don't know we'll we'll be able to make fun of mike ricardi or something yeah i know I, he's uh he's probably doing something really studious right now with his time <laughs> you know. 
yeah and we're just talking about the doctrines of grace you know yeah oh yeah i mean he'd be oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. You can, if you get him wound up on limited atonement he may not stop <laughs> so as i mentioned yeah. owen earlier i should have mentioned mike in the same breath you know it's like <laughs> there you go it's all right stuff. man well we'll uh we will see you later and uh yep. thanks again um and uh we'll we'll look forward to having you back on all right yeah let me know we'll talk to you later all right man see you yep see ya